Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with my co-host, Mary Catherine Carmichael, from Leadership Bloomington, Monroe County. And today the topic is wine. We've moved from gardening to wine. I was wondering if this was Mary Catherine's Favorite Things Month or what what the deal is. I I, I appreciate it. This is a tribute to Mary Catherine Month. Absolutely. Uh, Joining us in the studio, we have three guests, Jim Butler from Butler Winery, Pam Bonin from Oliver Winery, and Jeanette Merritt from Purdue University's Viticulture Program. If you want to join us on the program, call us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. And our web address is wfiu.org slash noon edition. Well, welcome, everybody. Thank Thank you for to be here. Thanks for for being here. We have bottles of wine on the table. Why didn't we think of this years ago? I don't know. I don't know. We're 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 just we're maturing. (laughs) We're like maturing. (laughs) Better we're slow learners. Like a good wine. (laughs) So we want to talk about the uh, the wine industry in Indiana and about your two wineries uh, specifically. But let's uh, let's Jeanette just got here. Thanks for making the trip down. We appreciate it. I apologize. Traffic around Bloomington's a little worse than traffic around West Lafayette. I guess. Boy, that's saying something. <laughs> that is saying something. <laughs> well, let's let's uh, now. You you are with the the Grape Council, the Indiana Wine Grape Council. Yeah, um, yeah. We are housed. Um, I'm sorry to say here at Purdue University, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and we uh, represent um, all of our wineries in the state. Uh, we do. Uh, we have experts in viticulture, um, enology, and marketing. So we work with all of our wineries and grape growers in Indiana. Mm-hmm. So how how many wineries are there in Indiana, and is the number expanding? We currently have 55 wine. And the number is expanding monthly. I've actually talked to three potential wineries and vineyard growers just this week. Um, We have another one opening uh, yet this month, Uh, maybe 10 more by summer in Indiana. So it is a number that really is rapidly growing um, around the state. Mm -hmm. Now, Jim, when was Butler Winery uh, founded? We opened in 1983. We're the fourth oldest in the state. Fourth oldest in the state. And Oliver Winery was in the 70s, right? 1972. 1972. And so is it the oldest in the state? We are. We're the oldest and the largest in the state. And we're actually going to be celebrating our 40th anniversary next year, which wow. we're really excited wow. about. And we should say that, uh, you know, Bill Oliver just died not too long ago. It was just the last couple of months. And he was quite a, a figure in, in the wine industry in Indiana. Not only was he, did he found the first winery in the state, but he sort of parlayed his uh, his law, law school teaching background into some of the wine winery laws for the state of Indiana. Correct. Mm-hmm. He actually... Uh, really spearheaded the um, legislation to be able to allow the Indiana wine industry to really begin. So we have a lot to be thankful for, for his um, pioneering spirit, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, Jim, I want to ask you first about you know your relationship with the Oliver Winery and some of the differences in, in the two of your operations. Well, I was a winemaker at Oliver's for five to six years from 76 to eighty. So I, I worked for Bill Sr., and he, he was quite a character. And I said he was really kind of one of the early visionaries in the industry. So that's where I got my start. Mm-hmm. And um, since then, we've, we serve sort of a different group, I would say. Um, there's a lot of overlap between wine customers, though. There's, nobody has exclusive customers, but um, so different niche markets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Okay. So if you want to join us, I want to give our phone numbers again. If you have questions about your favorite wines or about uh, anything that has to do with wineries in the wine industry, 855-0811-877-285-9348, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Oh, I know that um, some of the wine that's made in Indiana is actually made from grape juice that is brought in from California, but that's starting to change at Oliver, Yes. Yeah, we actually um, – that is a very large part of our of our business plan is to bring in fruit from other states. And that's really great because we can get a consistent um, crop from them and we can really expand our wine list so that we can accommodate for all the different tastes and palates that are out there. So it's really um, – it's been a really great 
plan for us, but we actually reestablished our Creek Bend Vineyard in 2000 and I'm sorry, in 1994. And we've actually expanded it to 50 acres now. And we just planted three acres of uh, Traminette uh, this past week. So um, it's been a really great way for us to get back into the viticulture side of winemaking. And um, Bernie Parker, our vineyard manager, along with um, Bill Oliver and, and Kathleen, really worked hand in hand with Purdue um, as we started to really establish grape growing again in Indiana. And it's been a really great adventure. We've um, it's been a, it's been a lot of fun, a lot of challenging times, but a lot of really great wines have come out of Creek Bend. So, who else is is growing grapes in Indiana? We actually have 600 acres of vineyards planted around the state, so we have um, a wide list of vineyard growers all around Indiana. And it's important to point out, you know, when people talk about the grapes that are being brought in, um, you know, we we make over a million gallons of wine here in Indiana. And 600 acres of grapes just doesn't cut, um, um, just does not produce a million um, gallons of wine. So as consumers' palates are expanding and people really want to consume the product, you know, we still have a lot of traditional agriculture in the state, a lot of corn and soybeans um, that are planted in our fields and just not um, quite the suitable climate um, for grapes here in the state. So we, we do need to bring in grapes from out of state to, to make some of those wines that people really want to see on the shelves. Well, that's what I wondered. It seemed like it would seem to to me that our um, production capacity would be quite limited because of the kind of soil that we have versus the kind of soil that, you know, having been to California a couple times to, to vineyards, it's very different stuff. And certainly the climate is very different. The climate is a bit different, but, you know, it, it is suited towards certain types of grapes, um, maybe not as suited towards other types of varieties. If you want to um, buy a Pinot Noir, you're, you're not going to find a lot of Pinot Noir grapes planted in Indiana just because that is, uh, we're not necessarily the climate for that type of grape. However, if you want to look at a Traminette, um, you know, and buy something here that grows well in the state, you're going to find a lot of Traminette around Indiana. So we work with other universities um, and our growers really to develop those types of grapes um, that will do well in our soils and that will do well in our climates so people can experience, you know, that local grape um, here in Indiana as well. Interesting. Jim, you look like you had something to add to that. Well, we've never brought grapes from California. We've always focused on Indiana grown or grapes grown in the region. So we do buy some Concord and Catawba that we bring into the state from New York or Pennsylvania. But as far as uh, most of our wines, we didn't think you to really focus on developing an Indiana wine industry, we shouldn't depend upon grapes from outside of the state. We need to do what we can do best here. Mm-hmm. And that's been our focus. And that's one of the reasons we've remained uh, a little bit smaller, perhaps, in what we could have grown by bringing grapes in from California. But mm-hmm. that's been our intent and our focus. Mm-hmm. Can we back out on this discussion Absolutely. just a little sure. bit? I, I'm interested. It seems um, certainly in you know our adult beverage lifetimes, that um, (laughs) wine has really grown in popularity exponentially. And, you know, Jim, especially you have certainly been watching this um, for many years. How do you explain it? What, what's the, how does the industry uh, account for this amazing growth? Um, if, if you go back a ways to uh, before Prohibition, and, and even before that, we had people coming from Europe with wine drinking cultures. And they got over here, and uh, grape growing was not successful on a large scale in the eastern United States. So it wasn't until people got to California in the 1860s that the, a large-scale wine industry began to develop. However, Indiana was the first wine-producing state in the country. They go back to VV, Indiana, 1802, and they started planting grapes there as a group of Swiss. And they were the first to have successful grape growing in the east. So we have this heritage in the Ohio Valley in particular. Well, that's an official fun fact right there. That's, that's pretty right. interesting. That's your trivia <laughs> fact, yeah. All right. But then you fast forward a little bit. Uh, that industry collapsed in the 1830s. There was an economic depression. Um, you could buy whiskey cheaper than you could buy wine. Mm-hmm. That makes sense on the frontier. Uh, then you go forward um, to Prohibition. Wineries disappear. Well, they came back in California first after Prohibition. And uh, but that was a time period of the Depression. People couldn't afford to buy wine. Then you had World War II. And so you come out of World War II, California's a leading industry. And um, it's mostly sweet dessert wines, fortified wines. And so table wines didn't surpass dessert wines until the 1960s. And that's really when the wine drinking in this country started to take off. Yeah, I wondered about that. I mean, I think back to Oliver's history. I think the soft wines, a soft red and a soft white were in the Camelot Mead were the you know, historic, the beginning of, 
Oliver, and those are all very sweet wines, but now you're into a lot of different things. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. With the success of the soft collection, mm-hmm. soft red and soft white and soft rosé and even Camelot Mead, mm-hmm. we, there's a lot of people out there, a lot of our cu- customers are like, gosh, I, I thought you only made sweet wines, and they're <laughs> awfully surprised when they actually come in to do a wine tasting that we make over 30 wines. And so um, I think that to kind of answer your question, Mary Catherine, is that, you know, I think things have changed. Wine's becoming a little bit more accessible. It's a little bit more approachable now. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of the wineries in Indiana, or even just wineries in general, try to um, accept all wine drinkers and mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, let them figure out what their palate enjoys. And mm-hmm. it's it's a lot more comfortable, I think, now. We try to you know, tear down those those walls of wine is intimidating, and it shouldn't be. It should be a lot of fun, and it's all mm-hmm. about what you enjoy. So uh, one of the benefits of having a taste room is to be able to connect with your customers and figure out you know, what they like, and then they understand it, and then they have the confidence to go out there and play around with other wines. And so our sweet-style wines are really great for us. It's uh, it, one more wine drinker, even as a sweet wine drinker or a dry wine drinker, is one more wine drinker for, you know, the <laughs> industry. And, and it's great. So now we have can expose them to other wines and they can really feel comfortable with their taste. Now, now what's the history of Camelot Mead? It's a it was a honey based or Yeah, Professor Oliver mm-hmm. uh went out to California uh to UC Davis to do a, a visiting professorship and he actually uh tasted the wine Camelot Mead and fell in love with it. He was like, gosh, I have my vineyard out in Indiana, we're making a lot of drier style wines, and this would just be a hit, you know, really kind of thinking, gosh, there is a sweeter palate out there in the Midwest. This might work really well. So he, he actually purchased the rights to produce that wine and brought it back to Indiana. And it, it truly was the wine that put us on the map. And we still have a lot of people today that say, gosh, I remember the Camelot Mead back in the 70s, and I still drink it today. And Or there's some that say, gosh, that's where I started, and now I really enjoy uh, Cabernet Sauvignon and, or Traminette and a lot of other varieties of wine. So. Mm-hmm. Now, Jim, how's, how's Butler's wine, how have Butler's wines evolved over the years? Oh, well, I think we've gotten consistently better with more experience. Um, when I started in the industry in 76, we had uh, – the Indiana Wine Growers Guild, and I remember one of the first meetings I went to, we had a wine tasting, and I think back to the wines we were drinking, the public was drinking then, and the, everything in the country has gotten so much better, and you have to run to keep up. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Again, our phone numbers are 855-0811-877-285-9348, and wfiu.org slash noon edition. I want to ask about the uh, movie Sideways and how that might have had an impact on, <laughs> I love that on, movie. The, on the wine industry. Uh, it had to hurt Merlot. Merlot! It had to hurt Merlot. <laughs> the number of people that actually came into our tasting room and said they wanted a Pinot Noir, I mean, it was just amazing. And so, of course, I said, gosh, did you just watch Sideways? And oh, I don't like Merlot. And so, you know... I was tempted to make them do a blind tasting and see if they liked Merlot, right, but I didn't. Right, but right. Uh, but it, I think it, it did change people's perception a little bit. But mm-hmm. yeah. But that, if anything, it was a nice benefit for the industry because it got people interested uh, in wine in general. So, mm-hmm. Jim? I remember we talked about how do we do an Indiana version of the Sideways movie. You know, <laughs> uh-huh. Who are our characters going to be? And we came up with some good ideas, but we couldn't get a producer yet. <laughs> oh, too bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, let's go back to the the whole weather issue. I want to get into a little bit of the science maybe of, of growing grapes and of, of wine. What is it about, uh, you know, California weather or that's – I mean, I, I guess I could answer that myself. But <laughs> California weather is different from Indiana weather. But I mean, what's, what's a good, good wine uh, or grape growing weather? What's Indiana not have that – well, I would say our biggest limiting factor are the cold winter temperatures, below zero temperatures, and that eliminates certain grape varieties. It can be done, but, you know, it, it becomes an economic issue. Mm-hmm. And so you can grow Cabernet. I think, Oliver, you have some. We have some Cab Franc. Uh, we don't have a lot of it. We put it in a few years ago to see how it was going to work, and it's actually done very well. Mm-hmm. Um, we have about the same heat summation here in Bloomington as Napa Valley. Um, the difference is they have a longer season. They have at least a month longer when they accumulate that heat. So we have these hot nights. Grapes are out there, respiration rates up. So you get a little different physiology in the grapes. But mm-hmm. So you have uh, the soils. You know, California has all types of soils. Um, southern Indiana here, we're primarily clay soils, heavier soils, which, which you can deal with. It's maybe not ideal. You just have to do more drainage and site selection is more important. But uh, mm-hmm. we know it can be done. We know we can make, you know, good wines from grapes that we grow. So it's partly economics. But we're still looking for that 
always looking for that new variety that's just going to be perfect here. And, and the whole key to it is really finding the grape varieties that do best where you are. And Pinot Noir in the Pacific Northwest, you know, California's cabs. Uh, mm. But you go around the world, every region should have its best wines that you can make. And we don't all have to make the same wine. I think that's the most important point. Mm-hmm. All right. We have a phone call. Let's go to uh, Pete on the phone. Pete. Hello. Hi, Pete. Hi. Beautiful day. Thanks for having me on the air. Um, I'm not a teetotaler by any means, but since this is essentially a public uh, commercial for a <clears throat> an intoxicating poison, uh, I wonder what the local vineyards and or the industry in general does to promote uh, safe consumption. All right. Good question. Every promotion I do, um, and I will say uh, very upfront, um, in 1999, I lost a grandfather to a drunk driver, um, so I am very sensitive to this issue. I want people to um, understand that, you know, we are adults, and we all should be able to um, drink with moderation. Um, when you enter a winery around the state, obviously you will be asked for your identification, and all of our wineries have the right of refusal, just like any um, other establishment you might um, visit. So we are encouraging people to um, drink responsibly, bring a designated driver. You know, there are festivals around the state that encourage that as well. Um, so we are um, very aware of um, the responsibility that goes with that, but um, also realizing that people are adults and, you know, they they have to take some of that upon themselves too. Mm-hmm. And I think also arming your staff with the appropriate tools to be able to handle situations and be responsible servers is really important for us, especially as Oliver Winery grows. Um, we want to make sure that our, our staff feel comfortable and making sure that they are 100% aware of serving wine to our customers and the training has a lot to do with that. Mm-hmm. But then also there's small guidelines that some wineries can put into action and one that uh, we have had, especially because we have some of the larger events, is we allow one bottle of wine per two people for actually enjoying on the grounds. And there's times that people will look at us like, gosh, why are you limiting my consumption? But it's important for us. We're on a busy state road. And so mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. want to make sure that this is a, a a nice place to come that everyone can enjoy. And one bad situation is not going to ruin it for everybody. So, mm-hmm. Thank you. All right. Jim? I think if you look at the statistics, wine probably has uh, the least incident of drunk driving compared to beer and liquors. Um, wineries are not generally open after 6 or 8 o'clock in the evening. Um, it's a different atmosphere. And wine is made to be consumed with food. It's part of the meal. And that that's sort of puts in a little different light. Mm-hmm. Now, I know uh, I've, uh, a friend of mine has a daughter who's going through training at Oliver for being for being a uh, – whatever you call them, people that help. Sure, one of our TCM staff. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and apparently it's a pretty rigorous uh, training, like four weeks or something. Or You are correct, yes. yes. Four <laughs> weeks of training. We actually have um, – we just hired a new set of staff, and they're finishing up their their training. Mm-hmm. And it truly is about three to four weeks, and it goes from everywhere from really their their first exposure of training is just straight up with Bill Oliver and Dennis Dunham, who are winemakers, so that they can understand the our winemaking philosophy and that we are going to build their foundation of just winemaking in general. Because we want our customers to come in and feel like they're talking to the winemakers, even though we have you know, 35 to 40 great tasting room staff that are, we want them to be an extension of our winemakers. And um, that training is really important for us. So everywhere from customer service all the way to uh, responsible um, responsible serving. Yeah, I was sort of, part of my question was you, you I, I assume, give them that same, you know, what to look for in a, in a customer that's in there that maybe you should kind of cut off. And, yep, exactly. And, and our all of our managers help support. And Jim, well. you, you have the same kind of training? Yeah, everybody in the state's required to have server training now. And so we do instruct our employees and they're certified. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I also have a question about, you know, the location. You know, there are 55 wineries, but two in Bloomington, great college town. Uh, do you get a lot of students that come out and just sort of want to, you know, taste a lot of free wines? And Well, it, it appears to me that the student population is first a beer-drinking population. Yeah. And as they get older, they get a little more mature, they might gravitate towards wine. But I think younger people in general have much more experience with wine than they did, say, 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Much more sophisticated. 
Mm-hmm. We have a winery in West Lafayette, mm-hmm. um, so also you know right there near Purdue. And I think what that winery is finding is that the students bring their parents when the parents are visiting because they want to impress mom and dad. Uh-huh. And so when the parents are in town and maybe have the credit card with them, um, you know they're able to take those um, their parents over there and hopefully you know con their parents into buying them some wine while they're there. But you know really <laughs> okay. to impress mom and dad and, and show them um, what what there is to offer there. So um, I think that's been an interesting interesting thing to see is um, as our 21-year-olds and our graduating college students really want to show mom and dad what's going on. Right. Okay. I, I wanted to, to get back to Indiana grapes for a minute because, you know, when you go into a to a, a big store and there are lots, you know, you, there are the typical wines, you know, you, you find the, the Cabernet or the Chardonnay or, or whatever, but there are a lot of grapes that are grown here. You keep mentioning Tremonette, I think, and there's, I don't know, what, what are some of the grapes that, that you make wines out of in Indiana that are kind of unique to Indiana? Well, the, the primary ones I think you find for the whites are going to be Traminette, um, Vignol, Vidal, uh, there's Saval Blanc, um, there's probably some others. Chambersin. Chambersin for reds, uh, Foch. Um, mm-hmm. So there are 2,000 grape varieties in the world, mm-hmm. and we really see a very slim section of that. Yeah, and what are what are the characteristics of those particular grapes and wines, and how do they compare to say, uh, which one of those might compare to a Cabernet, or which one might compare to a Chardonnay or a Sauvignon Blanc or whatever. It's always it fun like to I know start, what I'm talking about. It's always fun to start with, um, you know, we, we promote Tremonette a lot here in the state as a grape that grows well. And so for people who come in, you know, they're familiar with Gewürztraminer or Riesling. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's where they've started drinking. Um, Tremonette compares very well to that. It's um, something that offers um, those same characteristics that you would get out of Gewürztraminer. As it's, it's a hybrid, so it's a cross from a Gewürztraminer grape. So um, I think that offers one of the best experiences for people who have never been to a tasting room, who've maybe only bought their wine from the liquor store shelves or the grocery store shelves, going into an Indiana winery and saying, you know what, I drink this. What do you have that's like this? And the winemakers, you know, or the, or the tasting room staff can guide and direct you into, you know, if, if you like Cabernet, maybe you're going to like the winery Chamberson. Maybe it offers some similar characteristics. So people should never be intimidated into going into a winery because really you get that one-on-one time to say, here's what I'm drinking at home and what can I buy here that's similar to that. Mm-hmm. And at Creek Bend, we actually... We we have three different types of grapes, I guess you could say. There's the European vinifera grapes that are very much like the grapes, like Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, the main more mainstream wines that are out there that people are very familiar with. And there's the interspecific hybrids, like Jeanette was talking about, or uh, like, like Traminettes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chardonnay is another great example. Then there's the grapes that are native to North America, which would be like Catawba and Concord. So it's so interesting to see there's these different species of grapes. And the interspecific hybrids are really interesting to learn about because they're actually a cross between those two other types of species of grapes. So you're going to get those really great winemaking characteristics that you want. For example, from a grape like Chardonnay, you're going to get those really great winemaking characteristics from the Chardonnay parentage. And then you're also going to get the really great, you know, the cold hardiness and disease resistance and what we need uh, in a grape to actually survive our weather. Not really survive, but to to uh, flourish in our in our in our environment here. So those interspecific hybrids, I think, are a really interesting thing, but new for a lot of people and sometimes can be a challenge. Mm -hmm. So the plant can be a hybrid, but then I also noticed that as I'm looking at wines, that there are often um, blends um, of different wines. Is that a common practice? Yeah, it's very common. I think um, we'll probably see more and more blending, but you get more depth of character often when you do blends. in Europe, traditionally, most wines were blends, and mm. then the Europeans brought their wine names over here, and uh, we can't call our wines Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. So in this country, we went to varietal labeling, and uh, that's why we're a little different than the European labeling situation. Mm-hmm. But you see a lot of blends and proprietary names now. We're going to take one phone call before we go to our break, and it's Ted. Ted? Hi. Uh, call me just a little naive or something, but if you import grape juice from someplace else and make it into wine, how can you possibly call it Indiana wine? Jim? Craft. Um, well, <clears throat> it's federal labeling laws that control it. It's very confusing. Um, so I've got to make sure I get this right. If you bring a juice in or grapes in from out of state and use the varietal name, 
you have to put on the label for sale in Indiana only, which exempts you from interstate commerce laws dealing in alcoholic beverages. So if we buy Chambersin from Kentucky, we have to say Chambersin and on the label uh, for sale in Indiana only. If it's grown in Indiana, then we can use the name Chambersin and not put for sale in Indiana only. Mm-hmm. So that's just one oh. of the regulations. And, and there are certain wines that we actually produce that we are purchasing the fruit from out of state and even from the East Coast. Like, for example, our soft red is made from Concord fruit. We actually cannot put on the label or the wine cannot be called Concord wine. It's actually we have to we have our own brand name for that, which is soft red, so that we can distribute it outside of the state of Indiana because there's a lot of different label um, regulations depending on where the fruit actually originates from. So, mm-hmm. oh, Okay, and I suspect that also explains why I can't order wine from some other state and have it shipped in. That's a different set of yeah, laws. Yeah, it's totally different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Ted, I mean, you're, you, so you're, you are asking basically how can you call it Indiana wine? Maybe a, a little bit like if a company's producing a... Uh, I don't know, a car or making anything here and some of the raw material comes from out of state, it's uh-huh. still being produced in Indiana. Now, the difference okay. really is Indiana yeah. produced, and they mean produced by fermentation, so the fermentation mm-hmm. place here takes place here versus Indiana grown. Mm-hmm. That's oh. the difference. Okay. Yeah, the production, the craft aspect of, of making the wine from raw materials takes place in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Right. So you do okay. have to read your labels closely. Ah, so I shouldn't re- shouldn't feel totally confused. No. <laughs> well, well, we hope you're less confused now. <laughs> I think it's interesting. I, I, I th- hope so too. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. All, All right, Dad. Is the traditional grape that maybe the you know a gardener would grow is that a Concord? Okay. All right. All right, we're going to have to take a short break. Uh, you're listening to Noon Edition. We're talking about wine. If you want to join us in the second half of the show, 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 for, for all of you wine drinkers outside of Bloomington, and WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcast directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. Programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, The Ether Game, Musical Mini Quiz, as well as Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Find out more at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Fridays, the WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Listen at 11.33 a.m., 11.55 a.m., and 5.45 p.m. to catch that day's feature. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. All right, some ambient sound for our program today. <laughs> this is Bob Zaltzberg along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. It's, uh, and welcome back to Noon Edition, our wine show today. Jim Butler from Butler Winery is here. Uh, he's got a nice corkscrew. Uh, that was Jeanette Merritt from <laughs> Purdue, <laughs> Purdue's Viticulture Program, and Pam Bonin from Oliver Winery, all three of our guests. Uh, well-versed in wines. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or call toll-free 877-285-9348 and wfiu.org slash noon edition. And that, in fact, is uh, wine being poured in the WFIU studios. <laughs> Life is good. Right now. Life is good. But, but we so are what are we doing? Are we, are we, what are we, how are we going to, is this like a, a wine tasting 101? You're going to teach us how to taste wine? I love this. Thank you. All right. Yes. Okay. So, um, Jeanette, you want to start us off here? Just well, this is Jim's wine. Okay. Um, so I'll let him describe the wine, but I'll first tell you a little bit of background about um, why we're pouring Traminette for you today. We've talked a little bit about it. Um, in November of 2009, the Indiana State Department of Agriculture, along with the Indiana Wine Grape Council and the Indiana Wine Industry, decided um, it, we needed a signature wine for the state. If we could have a state pie and a state bird and a state tree and a state song <laughs> and all those other things, um, we could have a grape that our industry would get behind and promote. So with 
with the help from the industry, um, we launched Traminette as our signature grape in Indiana. And as we've talked a little bit about, that's a grape that grows well in the state. It was something our vineyards and our growers were already doing very well. And it really was a place that we hope, um, you know, for people who were either very familiar with wine or really didn't know much about wine, it'd be a starting point for some of those people. So mm-hmm. it's a white wine, and a lo- we have about 33 of our wineries making it at this point. And uh, we're we're just very proud of the program and, and what it's done to raise awareness for the Indiana wine industry. Mm-hmm. Now, Jim, your first move was to... S- to smell the wine. Tell right. us what's going on there. Well, you want to know what the aroma is. And, you know, like 80% of your what we think of as taste is actually aroma. <laughs> and so you're going to get all the floral characters. It smells like summer to me. Yeah. The Traminette grape is a very floral, um, rosy quality to it and a little bit of a citrus, I would say, a little lemony citrus mm-hmm. to it. Very fresh. Good springtime, good summer, good deck wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very refreshing. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're drinking. Now, would our... this be served chilled? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Though, one of the questions I get a lot is, how cold or warm should my wine be? And a very basic standard answer I give people is, you do not take your wine straight out of the refrigerator and pour it in your glass. Because if it is that cold, yeah, you're not going to get the flavors, you're not going to get the aromas out of it. So for white wine, I always tell people, take it out of the refrigerator 20 minutes before you're going to serve it. And for red wine, put it in the refrigerator 20 minutes before you're going to serve it. And really, I think that brings... Both of your wines up to an an ideal temperature for for where they should be served, but never take it straight out of the fridge and just drink it because you, you just don't get the wine the way it should be. Okay, you do that with beer. I guess. <laughs> right. we, we tell people you can drink it any way you want. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're drinking to our phone callers. We have two on the line. Stan, Here's to Stan. Nice. Stan. Hi, I've got a, a basic question. We've been um, getting some wines with screw tops, and I, I know it. it doesn't provide the uh, panache for service, but it's a lot more reliable than cork, and I hate the synthetic corks. I break uh, corkscrews on them. Uh, Have your wineries uh, decided to go completely that way, or what are the issues? I'm really glad that you're a supporter of screw caps. We often get people who are a little bit more skeptical of them. So for me, this is exciting to talk to someone who totally supports it, which is great. Um, We actually have two wines currently that are in screw cap. It's our Bean Blossom Hard Cider and our Muscat Canelli, actually, which is now Moscato. Um, And they both have a little bit of an effervescence. So that was kind of our first um, step down that path of bottling with screw caps. And it's been really great for us. I think screw caps are beneficial for the quality of the wine. And it helps keep the fruit intact, and it helps the winemaker present a wine to taste the way it wants to taste without any other um, obstacles, I guess. There could be premature oxidation because, uh, you know, sure. corks obviously could not be 100% reliable, and oxygen yeah. can get through there. So that's one challenge. Um, and they're e- it, it's easy if you ever run a picnic or, you know, it, sometimes it's just appropriate. And, and I Who think- hasn't had the heartache of the <laughs> bottle of wine without the corkscrew? That is the definition of frustration. <laughs> Plan ahead. So it's been great. It's been great for us, and we actually um, a lot of our wines that uh, most people are familiar with, our soft collection and our harvest flavors are going down that path uh, to be in screw cap. So we're really excited about it. Not all of our wines will be bottled in screw cap because I think there is a bit of romance in, in some. Uh, not even some, but there's definite advantages for certain styles of wines to still be in cork. So uh, we are taking on our sweeter style wines that really uh, need well, to capture that fruit may I, tone. May I, make, may I make a suggestion for for those who um, have some reservations about the screw cap? I think presentation with a gold-plated pair of pliers and a, and a towel over the arm might, might help overcome that. <laughs> Stan, I can tell you're a class act. <laughs> Thank you. All right, Stan. Thanks a lot for the call. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. I'm glad Stan asked that question because I had that same question. It does seem like, I mean, has the technology just caught up in terms of, of the being able to, to use a screw cap? Because that did used to be like, ooh, boy, if you saw a bottle with a screw cap, you didn't want any part of it. 
Technology and perception, really, because as you say, you know, you used to see screw cap wine and think, hmm, what's actually in the bottle? And, um, you know, the same thing goes for a lot of other closures, too. Sometimes you see boxed wine and you think, hmm, should I really be buying boxed wine? However, if you look at a lot of those boxed wines, um, those are some medal-winning wines, and and there's some really good things behind that. There's just all sorts of new packaging availabilities, and um, I always tell people never be afraid of how things are enclosed um, because uh, there's just new ways to do things. And, and technology changes, and, and everything just catches up with itself. All right. Well, let's go back to the phones and Maureen. Maureen? Uh, yes. Um, I would like to speak with a gentleman who represents the industry in Indiana. I guess Jim would be that okay. person. Okay. Okay. Um, Jim, I am a very old French woman, and um, I was wondering how one would go about becoming a judge of Indiana wine. A judge at the State Fair Wine Competition, the Indy? For example, or any other way. I'll actually take that question because um, it is my office that runs the Indiana International Wine Competition. Okay. Um, and we do run that out of Purdue, and I... Um, would welcome your information, though I would have to tell you you're on a waiting list of about 100 other people that want to be judges for the competition. Um, It is a very popular job, um, an underpaid job, because um, our judges do this for free. Um, But it is, uh, we do work with winemakers, wine writers, um, wine educators from all around the country and all around the world to come in um, to judge the wine competition. Uh, We have 55 judges a year. Um, We run it out of Purdue, and we get about 3,000 wine entries from around the world. Um, So our judges uh, tend to be people we've worked with in the past, um, though you're always welcome to go on the website, IndieInternational.org, and drop us a note, and um, we can always add your name to the hat, and uh, maybe down the road we would have services for a French woman. Do you have any qualifications people have to meet? My qualification would be Mm -hmm. that uh, ever since I was a child, I have learned to drink wine in a responsible fashion and with what kind of foods, etc., and at the right temperature, etc. For example, when we say uh, chambre, room temperature, um, originally, the rooms were not heated or not very much, so it doesn't mean that it has to be warm. And um, I don't agree with putting the red wine in the refrigerator, <laughs> but that's something else. Um, One thing we do recommend for our judges is that they have an appreciation for wine from all across the world because um, our judges will at one point be drinking, you know, maybe some of the finest Bordeaux um, from regions you're familiar with. And then the Mm -hmm. next flight may be drinking apple wine um, from some wineries, you know, from Nebraska. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is uh, something we have to bring people in who understand a little bit about everything and can appreciate a little bit about everything. Yeah, that would be me. (laughs) Now, Maureen... I have a question for you. So when you were growing up in uh, France, did you drink, start drinking wine with meals when you were very young? Exactly. Mm-hmm. In fact, when we were very, very young, we used to drink what my mother called eau rosé, which means pink water. And we were told about the wine that we were drinking, but it was in the water. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was a mixture, but we, you could still taste it. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. Develop that palate early. That's right. All right. Well, you have the uh, you have the noon edition endorsement for being a judge. Thank you for calling. <laughs> Very good. Okay. All right. Okay. So, what was that address that I'm supposed to apply to? She'd like the address. IndieInternational.org. International. Two words or one word? Two words or one word? One. One word. International. Dot org. O-R-G. Okay, thank you. Thank you thank for you, calling. Maureen. Bye. All right. Well, we have a, before we go to the phones, you've just poured another mm. little taste. You want to describe mm-hmm. that to us? This is the Chamberson Rosé, and uh, Chamberson's the main red, main red grape that we grow, and this is made from what's called the free-run juice. So when you crush the grapes, this is the juice that comes out without being pressed. Ah. And so you get the lighter color. It's the traditional French rosé production method. 
And we're swirling. We want to aerate this one a little bit. Well, you're not only aerating, you're making it evaporate faster, so you're increasing the aromas in the glass. Are we looking for any legs or anything? <laughs> Is that a leading question? <laughs> um, that's, do you, do, you, do that, you do that with reds, right? Yeah, I mean, you, can. you can. It's not something I really put a lot of stock in. All right. But, uh, okay. <clears throat> and I have to brag on Jim for just a minute. As we were talking about the wine competition, um, you know, we pass out awards to wines from all around the world, and we give out some some major trophies. Oliver has won many of our major trophies over the years. Um, a few years ago, this Chamberson Rosé won the best rosé wine of the Indy International Wine Competition, beating out wines from France and Italy and, and Australia and, and, you know, Indiana. And so it was just um, a huge uh, thing, I think, for Butler and great for our industry to be able to recognize places like Oliver and Butler Winery who really are winning major awards and competitions and beating wines from all around the country. Now, we haven't talked any at all about pairings, but what would you serve this wine with? This is a good Thanksgiving uh you know, your poultry mm-hmm. type of lighter fare, not real heavy, not a steak wine, but it's mm-hmm. also just a good, uh, let's say, another good deck porch mm-hmm. wine with cheese, salad, things like that in the summertime. It's that deck porch time of year, too. It is. It's coming, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to go to uh, the phones and Tom. Tom? Hello. Hey, Tom. I just wanted to uh, ask Jim and Jeanette about their opinions on the expansion of viticulture as a uh, Uh, tourist attraction within the state. I always joke that I'm completely for it, um, and not just because my job depends on it, but um, (laughs) my husband and I are actually hog and grain farmers, and I keep thinking if I could figure out a way to make people come to my hog farm uh, as a tourist attraction, like people want to go to wineries as a tourist attraction, we'd we'd be doing great. Um, There are two million people who come to visit an Indiana winery a year, and those people, when they are in the state, are leaving, you know, a couple hundred dollars behind in those local communities. And so wineries are not only great for economic development and community development, it is a great chance to show off what we're doing here in the state and bring those visitors in. And so the more wineries we can have, the more, you know, acres of grapes that people want to drive through or get married in or or be a part of, um, I really think the better for, you know, the economy of the state of Indiana. Now, how have you – you're marketing this with a, an Indiana wine trail? Isn't, is there an Indiana wine trail? We actually have three trails, three trails in the state. Um, about 23 wineries um, are part of one of the three trails. Uh-huh. Um, we have the Uplands Wine Trail, um, which Oliver and Butler are both a part of, that encompass nine wineries. Uh-huh. Uh, we have the Indiana Wine Trail, which is the southeastern part of the state that six wineries participate in there. And then we have the Indy Wine Trail that is the Indianapolis area that also encompasses six wineries. So uh-huh. – um, we have, and then you know, there's thoughts of some other trails around the state as well as um, the distance between wineries um, um, shortens as more wineries open. So we may see a Northern Indiana Trail at some point, um, or some other trails around the state. So, do many people take advantage of that, or start at one end of the trail and they finish up at the other end? Definitely. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uplands is having an event this weekend, I think, with some wine and cheese. Wine and, and, and I know that there that this event has always been very popular, and, and how people does, will how, go. So, how does it work? Well, we just have samples of cheese that we have mm-hmm. that people can try and pair with different wines. Mm-hmm. It's a no-cost event. We do some where people buy tickets, several different events, but this is no cost. Mm-hmm. So people would go to all of the wineries on the trail. All How many are on the to. Uplands Trail? Nine. Do you know? There's nine. nine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think what the trails really do for a, a grape-growing region that have kind of, you know, we've all kind of bonded together in the south-central region for the Indian Uplands Wine Trail is it just incentivizes customers to explore the back roads of Indiana, which is so great. We're mm-hmm. very lucky to be on State Road 37, so mm-hmm. we might be able to pull somebody straight off the road that's heading to IU to drop off their kids, you know, mm-hmm. for school. But Or they dropped off their kids who want to celebrate. Exa- exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But it's it's also great that some of the smaller wineries that are tucked away in the, in the rolling hills of southern Indiana, mm-hmm. w- there's a way for them customers to find them and this trail really links all that together and it just helps all of the the towns um kind of work collaboratively collaboratively together and you say that's this weekend for the uplands that what a it's great ca- it's weekend. called toast to spring uh yeah. for this coming weekend and it's so beautiful right now and i'm sure that would just be a great way to spend it the weekend mm-hmm. all right well thanks tom thanks for the call and our numbers again, 855-0811, 877-285-9348, wfiu.org slash noon edition. We have about 
eight minutes to go. Um, I wanted to, you know, ask about these. I mentioned this before the program. The wine labeling and descriptions are uh, always sort of make me chuckle a little bit because, you know, I, I guess, uh, you know, as I said to Pam, it's kind of power of suggestion because I, when it says that I'm supposed to be tasting raspberries and vanilla, I usually <laughs> try to find them in there somewhere, you know. Um, but, you know, in, in these wines, I mean, how would you describe the ones that we just tasted? Are there particular flavors I'm supposed to be picking up, like on this? The well, pink? I look at the back of the label to see. Yeah. <laughs> so it says, uh, the Tremonet is that very floral uh-huh. uh, with citrus is how we describe and, it. And you, you wrote that, right? Right. Okay. Great literature. Uh-huh. So, uh, but we recommend with Asian cuisine and cheeses and uh, smoked meats. We've had it with smoked meats with great success. So mm-hmm. we always like to try to do wine and food pairing suggestions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so helpful, too. If you're having a dinner party, you need to know what to serve. This t- this smells. I haven't tasted this one that we're about to taste. So very, very different from oh, yeah. uh, the other ones. What's it smell like? What do you think? I'll tell you, and then you'll go, oh, yeah, I smell that. This wine is from Sadik Winery. Uh, Sadik is in the northeastern corner of the state, up near Polkagan State Park in Fremont. This is an apple wine. Uh-huh. Um, so this is to show that, you know, we make wine from grapes in the state, but we also, you know, have fruit wines as well. So this is something that they used some apples in, um, some local apples to their area, and made a, a nice, lovely, again, summer type of apple wine that you would enjoy on your patio or with friends and mm-hmm. with some aperitifs or cheese and um, just a nice, light-sipping wine. I've never tasted anything like this, but it's very good. It's a very good wine. Um, it's actually a, a bit, I think this is a, a newer release for them, um, but just a lovely wine. Um, I would even put this, you know, with your pork dish, um, oh, pork loin, or delicious, some, you know, some lovely shrimp dishes. Um, this would be really good. Mm-hmm. Wow. Really unusual. Um like I said, just nothing like anything I've tasted before. Very it, And it shows that, you know, we, we have such a wide range. There really is something for everybody. We have gentlemen in the state um, who are making hard cider um, that falls under the wine label. Um, we have ports and brandies and grappas and, you know, some of those fortified types of wines. So really there's there's quite a wide range. Mead, um, mm-hmm. you know, we have a meadery in the state um, that's just making wine from honey. So there's, there's a lot going on around Indiana. Well, I know my wife is a big fan of, of Jim's port. You make a port. We do, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. Now, so what is a port? Describe a port. A port is a wine that has had brandy added to it. Okay. So that raises the alcohol from what might have been, say, 12% up to, we, we run ours around 19.5%. Mm-hmm. And they're usually some barrel aging, and they're sweeter styles as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Pam, Oliver has ice wines, I know. What, what's, what's that? Um, our Vidal Blanc ice wine is actually made from grapes that are frozen on the vine. And... It's it's such a there's a lot of TLC that has to go into um, making uh, an ice wine and so to truly make an ice wine you actually have to pick the grapes frozen and press the grapes frozen so we're harvesting our Vidal Blanc grapes typically end of December early January you have to be at least under you know maybe ten degrees Fahrenheit to get a good a really good freeze what happens when you when that Vidal Blanc grape that's freezing on the vine you know goes on past harvest season in the fall, the sugars all really concentrate. So you're getting this just luscious, rich, sweet juice out of that, which is going to result in a wine that is quite sweet. So the residual sugar level is is quite high in comparison uh, to other styles of wines. And it's just, they're just really great, rich wines and um, such a such a treat to taste if you ever have um It know, must be a small run, though. You can't... Yeah, the amount of juice that yeah. you are going to get... It really, it's it's really it's truly reduced quite a bit um, because the sugar is so is so concentrated in that mm-hmm. juice. So the amount of juice that you're going to get now are, are those and in, in ports both kind of an after dinner wine, yeah, a dessert mm-hmm. wine. Mm-hmm. Do you make ice wine, Jim? Uh, we actually bought part of Oliver's crop uh-huh. one year and made an ice wine. It, it's a very luscious honey character, but. Mm-hmm. As the grower, you take a big risk letting that crop hang out there. Uh, you could lose it all before mm-hmm. you actually get a nice wine out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, let's go to Valerie on the phone. Valerie? Um, yeah, I was happy to, to uh, hear that I shouldn't be deterred by packaging because I saw some Chilean wine at a ridiculously low price in the grocery lately, and it had screw top. And having had good experience with Chilean wine, I bought it, and it was quite drinkable. However, it didn't hold a candle to the uh, Indiana Select from Butler that I had the pleasure of sampling at a friend's a few days later. Well, and thank we were you. talking about this cork versus screw cap thing. And, you know, in the discussion, I said that I had always thought that the cork served some 
purpose for breathing, and we examined the foil, and sure enough, there were two little holes in the foil. So if that's not true, then what's the purpose of the two little holes in the foil? Well, if you have moisture between the cork and the foil, you want that moisture to evaporate out so you don't get mold forming. So that's why those holes are probably there in the foil. Oh, so it doesn't have anything to do with the wine breathing. Uh, there's a lot of controversy about corks and breathing. They've done a lot of studies, and I'm not sure they've ever really come to any conclusion. You, you can have wines that are oxidized with too much oxygen during the production. You can also have wines that are reduced without enough oxygen. So it's a very uh, complicated issue. Um, probably won't be resolved for a while. A lot of economics involved in what closure you use. But uh, screw caps, I, I have to put in a little mention, they are not 100% either because if the wine is too reduced, they get no oxygen, you can have problems. But if you talk to people in the grocery industry, they have trouble with screw caps on soft drinks because if they get dinged, they can lose the seal. So, oh, you know, yeah, every, everything has a, mm -hmm. has a factor to it. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, Valerie, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for the call. We only have a couple minutes to go. I did want to ask about the, the aging process of wine. I mean, what, what, do you, what do you age the wines in, and how long do you age them before you bottle them for sale? Most of our wines uh, from the 2010 harvest, we've started bottling. Most of those will be bottled by July. Now, some of the dry reds, it might get some extended aging in barrel or some, some other treatment we might not bottle for another even up to a year. Mm -hmm. But we always say that wines are like people. Some people age very well and some don't. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that, that's what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. A lot depends on if the wine is made to be aged or made to be consumed young. Light, fruity wines are generally consumed younger. Mm -hmm. And then do you have, I mean, are there, are there years that you say, wow, that was a great butler year, and, and you know, if I can get a butler 2007 or an Oliver 2006, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm in, in the money. Yeah. Last year was probably one of, a really good year. Those hot, dry summers, the dry fall. So 2010 and 2008 were probably two of the better years around here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, I agree. Interesting. And what, what, material, what, what do you age them in? What kind of barrels do you, you use? Are they wood? Are they metal? Or? We use oak. Most traditionally oak. is oak. Yeah, if so you're talking like barrels, you're usually talking white oak barrels. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh -huh. Okay. But they, you, can, you can have French oak. You can have American oak, Hungarian oak. You can have the heads of the barrels, the ends toasted or not toasted, light, medium, heavy toast. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's dozens and dozens of different barrels you can use. Right. They're not alike. Okay. Well, we are out of time. It's just, you know, party's just going to get started. <laughs> okay. Did you notice how thirsty our, our sound man and our producer look in there? Yeah, there, there's a big crowd gathered <laughs> <laughs> looking for some leftovers here. Well, I want to thank our guests today, Jim Butler and Pam Bonin and Jeanette Merritt, uh, for talking with us about wines. And we hope to have you back Indiana again. Indiana wines. Indiana wines. Hope, you, hope to have you back again to do this uh, at least one more time, well, several more times. <laughs> yeah. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Dan Goldblatt, engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. At the Herald Times, a podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.